because I have a dream. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. How are you? I'm fairly good right now, Neil. And of course, watching the news from around the world, especially the United States, people everywhere are protesting, taking to the streets to stand up for civil rights. We are right with them, hoping that everyone will stay safe and take care of themselves, but hoping that we can see some change and especially some positive change in the world. David, let's start this podcast the way we start all of our podcasts with the question that's in the title, Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil, it's October 29th, 1954. In Dresden, Ontario, a young journalist is eating at the famous, from a certain point of view, Kay's Cafe. A young man at the back of the cafe is complaining about the lack of service to the manager. The manager gestures at the door with a meat cleaver that he's holding, saying, We're too busy to have time to serve you. It's a depressingly ordinary scene in the town of Dresden, Ontario, but this moment will make headlines across Canada and even beyond. All right, David, the scene is set in 1954, small town Ontario. Why is this going to make headlines? Well, to start off with, the young man whom the cafe owner is refusing service is black. His name is Bromley Armstrong, and he is present at Kay's Cafe because Kay's Cafe famously refuses service to black patrons, which is particularly notable now in 1954 because primarily as a result of pressure from organized African-Canadian groups in Dresden, Ontario, which is a very small town, the Ontario legislature has passed the Fair Accommodations Practices Act, which requires that no restaurant or other corporation which routinely serves the public may discriminate on the basis of, amongst other things, race. So this is a test case And Mr. Armstrong is here deliberately to see if Mr. McKay will comply with this new law. And the young journalist I mentioned is here so that the world can see whether Mr. McKay will comply with this law. So the law says they can't refuse him service, but it doesn't look good from your description for Mr. Armstrong getting service. How does it play out on this fateful day in 1954? Well, it plays out like it has every time this has happened before in Dresden's history. Mr. Armstrong is turned away and in a legal sense, Mr. McKay 
will actually, for this specific incident, manage to evade all of the consequences. But in another sense, there's a journalist. This is being written down, and even as prosecutors refuse to prosecute, the entirety of the country is reading what happened. What is the reaction, David? As you might expect, there's a fair amount of variation. The Fair Accommodations Practices Act in 1954 was incredibly controversial, and frankly, people had not believed that it would pass until it did. And many people, even in journalism and in the newspapers, do not support it. On the other hand, the simple fact of the matter is that the entirety of the country is seeing somebody flout the law, the official democratic law of the land, without consequence. And that does not make anyone happy. In point of fact, the the government will actually require local prosecutors to reverse their initial decision and prosecute Mr. McKay. But they do a remarkably half-assed job And he gets off, again, for this specific incident, with no conviction. But the story doesn't end there. Then keep telling us the story, David. So it's helpful, I think, to move back to discuss the context of how this law got passed so that you can understand who is behind these tests. Because Mr. Armstrong, as it happens, is from Toronto, He didn't end up in Dresden, Ontario, looking for a sandwich at lunchtime at random. He is part of an organized group who have previously been promoting this law and now want to see it enforced. So to understand how this story is going to unfold, we need to step back and discuss who they are and why they're so passionate about this cause. Now... The first and most important group to discuss, of course, are the local black activists in Dresden. They're part of the National Unity Association, a civil rights association that was established in Canada to support the integration and the civil rights of African Canadians into their communities. Their local leader in Dresden, Ontario, is Hugh Burnett. He's a former soldier. He served in the Second World War, and he's lived in Dresden, Ontario all his life. By the standards of small-town Ontario, Dresden had a very large black population at this time, driven by its history. It was actually a stop the end point, one of the end points, for the famous Underground Railroad, and the single most famous resident, other than possibly Hugh Burnett, that Dresden, Ontario has ever had, was Josiah Henson, who famously may have been the model or prototype for Uncle Tom in the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, with his lecturing on the status of slaves in the United States after he escaped to Canada. 
So this town, David, is the end point of the Underground Railroad, yet centuries later, it's still an issue and they're still fighting for equality in Dresden, Ontario. Exactly. And the irony isn't lost on anyone that the ancestors of the community in Dresden may have successfully escaped slavery in the American South, but they did not escape discrimination just because they got across a borderline to a country with different laws. So what is Hugh Burnett going to do about it? In 1943, while he's still a serving soldier in the Canadian Army, Hugh Burnett writes to the federal government complaining that he went back to Dresden, Ontario, to his hometown. And because he'd been on service and wasn't living in Dresden at that time, he stopped in a restaurant looking for some food like a normal person would. And they wouldn't serve him. And what's more, no restaurant in the entirety of the town was willing to offer him service as he was just looking for a meal because he wanted to go back to his hometown to see his family, a serving Canadian soldier. And the federal government responded with a letter saying that there was nothing in Canadian law that they could do, that the Supreme Court in 1939, Christie v. York, had clearly established that private businesses had a right to discriminate if they wanted to. So Mr. Burnett was not happy with that response. As rightly he shouldn't be. So he decided that if the law was against him, he was going to change the law. So when the war ended, he moved to Dresden, Ontario full-time, started a carpentry business to support himself, and founded the National Unity Association to try and make a difference at a grassroots level fighting discrimination. And he fought it all the way to the city council, which is not very high up, but you know, it's a start. And he proposed legislation that would require private businesses to not discriminate. The city council didn't want to pass it. He told them that was fine, but he was going to send word to every newspaper he could that this was happening and the city council was refusing to do anything. So the city council said, instead, we'll give you a referendum. The entire town could have a referendum and vote on whether they think your law is good or not. Democracy, that's fair, right? Well, David, we've certainly come to see many examples where minority rights need more protection than can be offered at the ballot box, but I suppose that's a start for small-town Ontario in the 1940s. How is the referendum going to play out? Well, it might not surprise you to learn that the split in the votes between yes and no was almost exactly the split between black and white in terms of percentages in the population of Dresden. Disappointing, but not surprising. Not a surprising end result, but this got the word out. It was a news story that 
a small town had actually held a referendum like this. And word got to Toronto, where we introduce our second half of the cast of characters who were pushing to end discrimination in Ontario at this time. It may or may not surprise you to learn that this was primarily, although not entirely, the Jewish Labor Congress. As Jews, they were already fighting against widespread discrimination in Canada at the time. Anti-Semitism was a real lived experience for any adult Jew in the late 1940s, especially not just because of the war overseas, although obviously the Second World War and the Holocaust were terrible reminders of the cost of allowing bigotry and hatred to run rampant, but also very close to home. They were headquartered, as I've said, in Toronto. Have you ever heard of the Christie Pitts riots, Neil? You would have to refresh my memory, David. So Christie Pitts was a baseball stadium, well, I say stadium, a baseball field in Toronto in the 1930s. Local teams would go and play, and that was, you know, spectators would pay, small local sports leagues, fun, heartwarming fun for the whole family. In 1933, a group of supporters of the Nazi party unveiled a swastika flag at the Christie Pitt Stadium during a game between a local white Toronto team and an also local, mostly Jewish team from a more working class district. Unsurprisingly, tensions flared, fights broke out, the whole thing spiraled into a riot. The police primarily stood by in the initial stages until it became clear that the Jews were actually winning, at which point they put a little bit more effort into trying to clamp down on both sides. People were wounded. The mayor appealed for calm and requested that people not deliberately display swastikas in Jewish neighborhoods, which seems like a very minor request, honestly. But eventually, the tensions mostly died down. But for the Jewish community in Toronto, this was a traumatic, very traumatic event. A real sign that there were organized political forces that were opposed to their presence in their city. And in response, they'd organized. Even back in 1933, the Jewish Labor Congress was formed, and as well as fighting as a trade union for workers' rights, it was also fighting against anti-Semitism and all forms of discrimination. So the Jewish Labor Congress, David, has been fighting for diversity and for the rights of Jewish people in Toronto. How are they going to get involved now in the Hubernet case and this fight for equal rights in Dresden? So this takes us to Sid Bloom. He is the secretary of the Toronto Council for Human Rights, which is funded primarily by the Jewish Labor Council. 
he is Jewish, and he has founded this sub-organization because he believes that fighting for Jewish rights alone will never be enough, that what's needed is a robust system of law that will oppose all forms of discrimination because alone the Jews are a tiny minority, but if you unite all of the minorities in Ontario together, then they will be a sufficiently potent political force that they will be able to stand up for their rights. And his initial moves were class-based, pushing the labor union aspect, but he's already interested in supporting a more broad-based view of how to support human rights in Ontario. So when he hears about this small town that had a referendum about whether restaurants can deny service to people on the basis of race, he thinks that's interesting because it suggests that there's an organized group somewhere in the province that is thinking like him, that is thinking that stronger legal protections are needed for human rights. So he reaches out to this National Unity Association that the newspapers have mentioned, and he comes into contact with Hugh Burnett. And from Hugh Burnett, he starts to learn about what's going on in Dresden, about how widespread discrimination really is there. And he thinks that this is a powerful issue that Ontarians need to face. So he decides that he's going to try and support the National Unity Association. And if they can't win at a municipal level, they've got to move up a level and push for changes in the Ontario legislature. How are they going to win, David? We've already seen that they lost a referendum at the municipal level, albeit, but still, it seems like minority rights are going to have a hard time winning in Ontario at the time. So the first and most powerful weapon that Hugh Burnett and Sid Bloom have on their side is persistence. They know what they want, and consistently, for years, they are willing to fight to get it. And the thing is that in Ontario, there's not necessarily a huge reservoir of public support for the concept of strengthening human rights legislation in general. But that doesn't mean that there's a huge reservoir of support for any sort of extremism on the opposite side either. And one of the consistent problems that the opposition to the National Unity Association will have is they keep on shooting themselves in the foot. For example, another small town near Dresden, Ontario, North Buxley, Ontario, will have an issue in 1951 when one of the locals 
decides to hold a cross burning on his front lawn to try and intimidate the local black populace. That may or may not have had an effect in North Buxley, but it hits the newspapers because Sid Bloom, remember, is making sure that every time something happens, the newspapers hear about it. And most ordinary people in Ontario, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to fit local values. And I'll note that local values in Ontario are not wonderful. Uh, The Orange Order at this point is one of the most powerful political organizations in the province, and it is very, very bigoted in a number of ways. But the Ku Klux Klan, cross burnings from the American South, ordinary people don't like that idea. So it actually strengthens the premier's hand, and he passes his first piece of human rights legislation, the Fair Employment Practices Act, which mostly doesn't come into our story, except for in the sense that after it passes, it proves to be fairly popular, and the premier, Leslie Frost, realizes that maybe supporting human rights can be a good political move as well. And then, to no one's surprise, the opposition in the Ontario legislature managed to shoot themselves in the foot just as much as local small-town boys had managed to earlier. One of the first arguments that springs to mind for the conservative faction who oppose the concept of the Fair Accommodations Practices Act, which the Jewish Labor Council and the National Unity Association are already pushing for at this point, the first thing that springs to mind is to accuse all of their opponents of being communists. And in 1930, that might have worked. We've already discussed on the show in, if I recall correctly, episode 8, The Secret Police and the Election, we've already discussed how the political class of Ontario was strongly opposed to communism and willing to do sometimes ridiculous and even illegal things to oppose it. But this is 1950. The Cold War is on. It's the duty of any good anti-communist member of the legislature to figure out how to convince people not to be communist, not to support communism. The idea that communist agitators are playing up class divisions and race divisions in Dresden for their own purposes doesn't convince the premier that he needs to clamp down and do nothing. It convinces him that he needs to take action first. He needs to respond in a bold way to show that Ontario will stand up for all of its citizens. And hey, there's already pre-written for him an act that will do just that. So he passes it. So a brilliant bit of political jujitsu, David, as they convince the government that as opposed to what the opposition is saying, this act they've written, the Fair Accommodations Practices Act, 
would actually be a way to fight communism by bringing more citizens into the fold. Yes, I should note the first draft was written by the National Unity Association. Of course, as it went through the legislature, it got rewritten and amended many, many times, as is normal legislative practice. But the fundamental concept remains. No one who customarily provides service to members of the public can deny service to members of the public on the basis of race, class, creed. So it's a start. Not perhaps the most comprehensive human rights legislation possible. You may note I did not mention sex as one of the prohibited grounds. That will be a later act of the Ontario legislature that's separate. But it's a start. And the fact that it's unpopular, the fact that people will try aggressively to avoid prosecuting, that becomes obvious very quickly. But rather than letting that stop them or discourage them, the National Unity Association views that as a sign that they need to press harder, try harder to change things. And therefore, when Bromley, Mr. Armstrong, and Miss Ruth Lore, who I have not yet mentioned, but who also was part of the group that came and attended the restaurant, Mr. McKay's restaurant, on October 29th, she was Chinese-Canadian, just to demonstrate she was also refused service. This was not purely anti-black racism, but after their case fails in the courts multiple times, the National Unity Association will send more people to prove to try and file more complaints. The Minister of Labor, Charles Daly, is in charge of bringing prosecutions under the Act. At one point, he will send a judge to investigate the circumstances in the town of Dresden to get a formal report. After he gets the report back, he announces that the judge did not recommend any prosecutions and that he will not be releasing the report. That becomes another media firestorm. For the record, he was lying. The judge did recommend prosecutions under the Fair Accommodations Practices Act. Multiple, multiple people will continue to struggle to get the act actually enforced. So the law, David, gives the legal force to this notion of equality, that everyone should be served by these businesses. But of course, it doesn't solve the systemic problems and actually end discrimination. It'd be lovely if a piece of paper could do that. But it's a good start for the National Unity Association and the forces fighting to end this discrimination. Where do they go from here, David? Well, eventually, two more black students are brought down from Toronto. Jake Elaine and Percy Bruce. They do another sting in Kay's Cafe. Again, they're denied service. One of their assistants, who's white, talks directly to Mr. McKay and gets him to confess 
why he's doing and what he's doing. The province is eventually forced to prosecute again. This time they win, different judge. He rules that this is a clear violation of a clear law. And as you say, that doesn't and can't end discrimination in Ontario. But the fact that the law is now being enforced does have a practical difference for African Canadians in the matter of being served and also in the matter of getting employment, which of course is very important. There's a sad coda to this story before I end here. Hugh Burnett himself, he has multiple death threats made against his family. The local population of Dresden boycott the carpentry business that he was using to support himself and his activism. It eventually goes bankrupt. He has to move to London, Ontario, where he eventually does start a new carpentry business and continue his activism on behalf of black Canadians until his death in 1991. And that sort of says it all. The struggle never ends because there's no simple way to end it. But things get better continuously over a long period of time. Small actions, small efforts add up, reach tipping points, and make the world a little bit of a better place. It's a hell of a fight, David, and uh, sort of puts into some historical perspective what we're seeing throughout the world today. And hopefully more and more people will get on board and support these fights so that it gets a little bit easier and is not left to heroes like Hugh Burnett to do it all by themselves. Exactly. And sadly, but importantly, it's also a reminder for those of us who live in Canada that it can happen here too, but that we can make a difference here too. Certainly it has been shown that discrimination knows no borders as we're seeing almost every day these days. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I'm always happy to share this kind of story, Neil. And we always like to end the podcast with some sort of quiz or trivia or game of some sort. And David, among all the things going on in the world, the civil rights fight that we've been talking about, the pandemic that is continuing, it is Pride Month in June. So I thought we'd have a Pride history quiz. One more thing, but perhaps a more hopeful thing. Let's celebrate. Yeah, another area where we hope to see more progress. So, David, question number one. I have five questions for you. The rainbow flag was designed by Gilbert Baker in 1978. How many stripes does it now have? Huh. I should probably be more confident confident in this, but... I'm going to guess seven. You're right in the middle, David. It now has six stripes. It used to have eight stripes. So they uh, got rid of pink because it wasn't a color that was easy to print for flag making. And then they got rid of another one so that it would have an even number of stripes. So that if you're doing it on a parade or something, you have three and three. So six stripes on the pride flag. What European city boasts the homo monument to victims of homophobia? I will guess 
Amsterdam. David, that's always a good guess when it comes to pride questions, and you are correct. It is in Amsterdam, and it's dedicated especially to victims of the Holocaust. Staying in Europe, what was the first European country to decriminalize homosexuality? Ah, that is an interesting question. I do not know the answer. I'll guess Great Britain. A good guess, David. It was actually the other side of the channel, France, which decriminalized homosexuality in the Penal Code of 1791. Let's go way back in history now to ancient Greece and the city of Thebes, which erected a monument at the mass grave of an elite gay army unit to mark appreciation for the soldiers. What form did the monument take? Ah, in episode 11, The Philosophy Student and the Spartan Army, we discussed the sacred band of Thebes and their famous ties to homosexuality amongst other things, but I do not know what form they erected the monument in. I would imagine, being Greek, that it was in the form of a god, perhaps Zeus? I like how you figured that out, David. Unfortunately, it was actually a stone lion. Would have been ironic if they had created a stone wall to commemorate them, considering what that would later come to signify in pride history. Last question for you, David. In what sport did the first married same-sex couple to win gold at the Olympics win their title? Uh-huh. Well, I imagine it was in a couple's sport, so a sport where they could compete together. It definitely wasn't an individual sport. David. Yeah, okay. So I will guess... Figure skating? Good guess. It was at the Summer Olympics in field hockey. Kate and Helen Richardson Walsh were part of Great Britain's winning team in 2016. Thanks for playing along, David. Always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 